I do have this sort of comical, you know, well, what about this other thing? I, whatever, just like, you know, I basically love all of my children uh, equally, you know what I mean? But we definitely have, for Sloan, you know, we definitely have records that people love and then people, some that are, you know, we have 12 full-length records and there are, I think there are some that are consistently in the bottom two or three and whatever, it makes sense and it's fine. Obviously, if you have 10 records, you're going to have your own personal hierarchy. Mm-hmm. And is it the sense that your relationship to them have has kind of soured over time? Or was it clear at that moment that they just weren't your best thing? Oh, well, if anything, the only the, the one thing that I've learned, or like our first record, we have 12 records. Our first record was very of the time. It was very, um, you know, using the language of shoegaze and grunge. Uh, when it was already too late to the party. And, uh, but we, so we immediately, for our second record, we wanted to get out of there. We thought it was like a, a burning house or, you know, get us out of this indie rock club or whatever, like grunge club. Like so many awful records are being made in this whatever genre. And so I didn't really like our first record for, for a couple of years because I just felt it was so embarrassing and so, of the, so du jour. I love it again because it's it is of the time and I kind of like it. We, we we made a concerted effort starting with our second record to make timeless music, timeless, uh, you know, when our first one is decidedly very 1992. But then um, the other thing is just the product of getting older. It's like, you know, I really like this thing, you know, people's favorite record. It just gets farther and farther away in time. It's just like, uh, and then it's just like, then and it's harder and harder to compete with it because it's 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 wrapped up in nostalgia and and the way people felt about themselves back then and all that kind of stuff being a rock musician who you know goes on tour and obviously there's a certain amount of playing the hits or you know playing fan favorites that you have to do because if somebody's like coming out and paying to see you like you want to give them a little bit of, of what they want but that relationship is so different from just about any other artist in that i'm having trouble thinking of another medium where the artists who made something 30 years ago are forced to revisit it night in and night out. I'm more interested, for example, in say in comedy, like if there's new comedy, I'm more interested in that than new music. Like I don't care about new music anymore. I'm too old. I love music. It changed my life, but it's just, it's harder and harder for me to, but with new comedy, like I love the history of comedy as well, but I like, I also love new comedy, but you often find, you probably know like musicians, you know, I saw that you had Kevin McDonald on and, you know, you know, musicians love comedians and comedians love musicians. But but the way that they're polar opposite or what they what they envy in each other is, you know, a comedian would look to a musician and say, you get to sit back and play your hits. And I have to, you know, but for a comedian, like it's it's you have to be has to be new all the time. Uh, a musician would envy a comedian because it's like I want to play all my new songs. I don't want to have to play all these old ones. And whereas a comedian would say, I don't want to have to write a whole new show. I want to just go out and play my greatest hits. Like, you know, but if, if I don't write a whole new hour, I can't go back. Were you chasing something on that first record? You know, it, it does it sound of the era because you were trying to be of the era? We were just, we, we didn't know anything else, but just we want, we liked My Bloody Valentine and, and that kind of thing. And we didn't expect to be playing outside of town like we were just a local band like hey maybe maybe we should uh, make a band like that for our town kind of thing and then we got all these opportunities to play outside of town and outside of canada 
And then when you go to England and you're, and it's 1993 and you're copying the sound of My Bloody Valentine from 1988, it's, it's kind of embarrassing. And it's like, let's, let's do something else. Well, it was that first record or, you know, like really like er- those early songs that got you signed to Geffen. Yes. Yeah. We got signed pretty much right away. Like we didn't do a lot before we got signed. We got really lucky. It was, we were definitely in the time of Nirvana. Like we were, we had, we were 22, 23 years old and starting to record and had been in bands for years in September 91, whenever basically the world came looking for people like us and we were ready to go. Like you know, I joke that it's the last time I had any kind of opportunity was then. I've just been blowing on the ember of that opportunity for 30 years. I understand and respect the impulse to not want to be chasing it. And, and you're right, especially because a lot of the, I guess, post-grunge is the proper term, but a lot of the stuff that came after Nirvana was fourth, fifth generation pale imitation. But at the same time, there was a sound that got you that label so actively pushing against that is there a little bit of self-sabotage involved i don't know if it would be called self-sabotage we really thought that we were really well always thinking of of what would give us longevity i really thought that that doubling down and doing more grunge in 1994 we just thought it was just way too late even though it seemed to go on for years after that like we you know we were kind of you know we made a a pop record and our reference points were Fleetwood Mac, Rumors and Plastic Ono Band. And, and it was still, it was still heavy grunge times, you know, like all the sort of, what would they be like uh, collective soul and that kind of sort of like pretender candle stuff, Candlebox and all that stuff was still happening. But as a, as an investment in the long term, I, I, I still think it was the right thing to do. I mean, the guy who signed us to Geffen, his name's Todd Sullivan. And we were his first signing and he was an underling mailroom guy. And then his next signing was Weezer. And then he went from being like this low man on the totem pole to the only, then, then there was a mass exodus, like all the A&R guys left Geffen. And then all of a sudden this mailroom guy was the only uh, A&R guy with a million seller was the Weezer record. And they were, they were really taking off as we sort of were kind of hitting this, hitting the skids. So don't mention them because they still boil my blood. I'm just Weezer. kidding. I'm just, yeah, <laughs> I'm just teasing. The Blue Album in a lot of ways, at least to me, and I guess, you know, my age and coming up when I did, is kind, it's kind of unimpeachable as a pop Yeah, record. I mean, it's well, undeniable. We, we, like, as we were begging for $2,000 to make a video in somebody's backyard, I was at Todd Sullivan's house and he said, hey, watch the, yeah, you can have $2,000, sure. Check out this new video for Buddy Holly. Like he Fonzie's in it. And I was just like, I was basically in tears. I was like, we're, we're dead. This is awesome. We, we always joked at the time that Weezer made our second record, and then our second record should have been our third record. That's, we should have done it in that order. But we didn't. We actually uh, didn't write those songs. But, uh, yeah, the first Weezer record's great. It's interesting to hear you say that you were – thinking about longevity, like at that point, at that early on in your career, you, you were a band, you just signed to a major label with, you know, all of these other bands that were taking off at the time, especially at that age, at that time, most people are really just sort of living in the moment, but you were thinking that far down the road? We weren't, we weren't 17. Like I had already graduated from university. You know, I wasn't, 
I wasn't a little kid. Uh, and we had been in bands. But early 20s is still, you know, fairly young. Yes, but the whole time that we got signed, we were excited about it, but we were always preparing to be dropped. Like, like we had our, we ran our little record label at home to keep a foot in the local community and contribute locally because we didn't play locally anymore. But also as a kind of an insurance policy to practice putting out records because we figured we'd be back there. And we and sure enough, we were. As you've spoken to your contemporaries and your peers who were in similar positions, were they all kind of waiting for the other shoe to drop at that point? I don't know. We were the luckiest people we know. We knew like all of our friends, bands. I mean, we met Sebado and we met Weezer and stuff, but we didn't run with those guys. Our friends were in bands like Thrush Hermit, Eric's Trip, Jail, uh, the Inbreds, the Local Rabbits. Hardship posts. Like, These all bands that you eventually signed to your label. Yeah, but but those were our friends, and you know, they we were luckier than they were. We had a major label giving us some money and, and attention, but they were just they all had jobs, and we were putting out their records and trying to run a utopian business on a sort of bleach model. It's like you know, if you do a record with us, and then you get a record deal with somebody, go ahead. And then we'll have your, we'll have your EP and we'll make money if you guys make money. But we just thought of it as a kind of farm team. And, and because we already, we made our money doing something else. We, we didn't want to have contracts. We didn't want to hold anyone back, you know, and all of those well, hardship post and jail and Eric strip all went to sub pop and thrush hermit were on Electra in the States and the inbreds were on a, uh, a label, a short-lived Atlantic subsidiary called Tag. Anyway, um, they all kind of got to taste a little bit of it, played in the States, played in, in England and stuff. But uh, anyway, uh, I don't know what, what my point is, but uh, I guess I guess we were um, maybe forward-thinking in that, I guess, you know. Pragmatic, I think, is probably the proper word, you mm-hmm. know, and I, I guess old enough and wise enough at the time to understand how this thing tends to go for bands. Yeah. The, the other thing that we did was we, we decided, even though it was kind of my band, I knew all the guys and brought them together, and I was writing most of the songs, but we also decided from the outset to split everything equally, all of the songwriting, in an effort to keep everyone interested in the band. Now, I had played in a band where I was a young guy. I was 21, and they were 26. And they got a little record deal in Canada. And they, um, but when that broke up, I didn't, I didn't care that much because I didn't really, I didn't run that band. I just knew the feeling of, of, I just wanted everyone to be invested so that it would be, I didn't want to change members and all that kind of stuff. Like I was, you know, I've bent over backwards to try to, to show all four of our faces and to, show off that we all write and we all sing and we all share equally and we're a uh, an exercise in democracy for better or for worse for better or for worse is is a good way of putting it i you know i talk to a lot of bands and not all of them but but a majority of them have told me that to some degree it needs to be a little dictatorial in that one person really needs to have the clear vision and you know you hear all these stories like there's that but when um, you're talking to that when you're talking about somebody who feels that way, you're talking to the dictator. I mean, what do the other guys think? I'm, I'm joking, but, uh, you know, but <laughs> I would, I, I think it should be dictatorial too. Do you should do what I say? Of course. But then I lose my band, but 
That's it. Exactly. Uh, they think it should be dictatorial in the sense that like they, they don't care who's in their band. No, it's not, it's not even that at all. I'm talking, I'm talking like, I'm talking people in bands that have like been together for, for a while. The sense is that not dictatorial in that, like somebody is, you know, being a bad boss, but in the sense that one person kind of needs to have the clear vision because the example I always think of is remember that Credence record where they let everybody write the songs and it just kind of, it was a bit of a mess. I don't know it specifically, but we've talked about it in the context of my band behaving the way it does. Yeah. This hasn't been the case with Sloan because it's, it's 30 years this year. But it is, but, but I can describe our band as just as big a mess. Like we definitely have been accused of writing compilation style records that don't hang together and those kinds of things. And it never bothered me. I always thought, whatever, I always like Revolver by the Beatles, which is just sounds like a a bunch of different bands. It just never bothered me. The idea of being accused of making a compilation style record, to me, just feels like a, a, a compliment that they don't know how to give. It's just like, otherwise, it's just unidimensional or like, I mean, I, I mean, I know there's a fine line and words you can use, like, our least eclectic record, I think is unidimensional which is called Action Pact, where Andrew didn't write any songs and all of us tried to write songs of a certain type. And I thought it was an interesting experiment, but I just think it's kind of the least Sloan-sounding record. It's the least eclectic, and it's uh, it's among the most maligned. <laughs> I, I guess maybe the question is, is you know, because I, I think we're mostly circling around songwriting, right? I mean, and that's what people tend to think of when they think about who is sort of in charge of the vision of a group. But is there a person who generally rallies the troops and says, hey, it's time to get back in the studio or it's time to tour? There is, but, and, 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 have, but, you know, he makes the same amount of money as everybody else. To be clear, because we're not using the video, that was, that was Chris. Yeah, sorry, I'm pointing at myself. Yeah, but, um, but I think that, I mean, of songwriting, I think that um, in the same way that I, I don't believe it when people say, certain people can do math and certain people can't. Like, I, I just think that everyone can do math. And did you get left behind? Because it's a cumulative thing. If you get left behind, then you feel like you can't do it. If you, you just have to know every step in order. I'm not a mathematician, but, but I just think, I think that anybody can write songs. And in our band, we encouraged everybody to do it. And I wrote the most at first. And then by our fifth record, we were, we had complete equilibrium and, you know, we help each other, I guess, but, uh, but we wanted to make it, again, as a, a deliberate uh, dem- democratic exercise to give it, make it a place for everybody to contribute creatively. And, uh, and you know, sorry, we were just talking about Sebado. Um, they did a similar thing. They all, they, 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 they were three and they all, they all wrote. Anyway, it is an experiment that can go badly, I guess. And, and it, perhaps it goes badly with us at times. But uh, I just think that, uh, whatever, I'm, I'm really happy about the fact that we've done it. I think that uh, it may have been sort of hard to sort of see what was going on with us at first because it was kind of dis- disparate. But when you look at it from 30 years later, like, I think that every guy has their own kind of style. And I think there's a really cool asymmetrical balance that we have within the band. You know, I'm more of a troop rallier, but, you know, Andrew is the most special musician and uh, Jay is the most finicky and wants to know about production and all that stuff. Patrick has generated the most money. 
you know, if, if, if I really had been dictatorial, I would have been, you know, I, I went out because, you know, I shared it with a guy who made more money from songwriting than I did. You bet against yourself and it paid off. Yes, exactly. So what I'm saying is... <laughs> There's a big benefit for having been signed early on in that that has created, in a sense, the momentum that has carried you for the rest of your career. But I'm always interested in the trajectories of bands. And like beyond that, ultimately, do you think it has been good for the health of the band that like that sort of high point in terms of real popular mainstream popularity came early on? I mean, a lot of people who make a great first record with lots of hype and everything don't get to make their second. A lot of people who have a great, you know, uh, shot out of the cannon and then they blow it the second time or they take a convert, they take a, an emotional risk or a, a career risk. I, I guess I'm thinking of the Beastie Boys and then they, then their third record, they kind of bounce back and then everybody loves them for having, even Weezer, I think, made the sort of the second record that, kind of was a, a bomb or whatever. And then everybody goes back and it's the one that everybody loves so much. You know, the, the true fans love that the most, even though like I, I, there's part of me that's sort of cynical about that. You know, it's like, I love it the most because I, you know, I can define myself by this thing that not everybody defines themselves by. You know what I mean? When you, when you when your favorite band becomes big, then it's like, I liked them before, or I liked them when they were at their, commercial nader, whatever. I don't mean, that's just cynical talk. Yeah, we were lucky out of the gates. Uh, we kind of set ourselves up for, you know, we were not dropped by Geffen. We were just like, we were like fighting a lot uh, in 94 and kind of wanted to break up. And Geffen basically, we owed them six records. Like when you get, when you have a six record deal, it doesn't mean you get to make six, six records, although you might, but it just means that you can't walk for six records, you know, if you're doing well. We owed them five records or four records or whatever, and uh, but they let us go. They were they were super cool about it. Like everybody we met at Geffen, you know, it's it's a corporation, but everybody we met there was they kind of picked all the coolest people in the United States. Like it was like people who worked at SST, and it was I don't have any complaints about that. But yeah, we set ourselves up and to we also have an interesting vantage point because we're from Canada and and being from Canada we have enjoyed commercial success that we haven't continued to enjoy in the in the states if you know about us in the states it's because you were on a website or some nerd told you about us like we're not nobody knows who we are like it's just music fans but in Canada we were on TV and the radio all through the late 90s all through the 90s uh, and into the early 2000s we were like a mainstream band. I don't mean from a sound point of view, but I just mean we benefited from mainstream media and then we never really didn't in the States. So we kind of have two careers, you know, one in Canada where we play at the Belleville Waterfront Festival with a bunch of other big Canadian bands. You don't probably even know who they are. And then we go to the States and then we get to hang with Red Cross and we look like we're a credible act, you know. Canada has these built-in triggers in the same way that, you know, that you have socialized healthcare. You've also got pieces of the media, I mean, CanCon, right? Like that, yes. that, that is specifically designed to lift up Canadian acts. Yes. And then within Canada, in Quebec, the French-speaking province, there's, a, there's another incentive there. So there are... People who are giant stars in Quebec that sing in French, and I, I don't know, I have no idea who they are. I mean, Celine Dion comes from that world, 
but uh, but there's a there's a whole industry there. They just and they just play in Quebec, and so some people are rich from doing that. Is it hard? Is it is it arduous? Is it exhausting to go to somewhere like the U.S. and and really have that? sort of step down in terms of, you know, maybe like venue and crowd size? No. And, and it's really not that much different now. I mean, we, when we play in Canada, we're able to, to get on more, you know, festivals that make money that, 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 that pay better. But if we play a, you know, we would play in Toronto, we would play a, which is where we live. We would play to 900 to a thousand people. Like that would be a, as big a show as we do now. And that's great. Yeah, but if we play in Detroit, we play to 600, you know, that's, that's getting up there. Uh, you know, as the farther South you go, I'm buddies with, with Stephen Page, who used to be in the Bare Naked Ladies. And his joke about a touring Canadian band is you get to the border and you just put a suitcase of money on the top of the car, and then you just start driving <laughs> south. They made it here. I mean, they made it here. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. About yeah. any Canadian band. That's right. But, I mean, not that we need to go into it, but he's no longer with Bare Naked Ladies. So, you know, he doesn't have money like they do. Like, they've got they've got tons of money, those guys. They play. They still still make so much money. But he was there for that. He was, it's one yeah. one of those weird things where, like, they're a one-hit wonder here. Right. But they have, like... 15 albums or something. But he was around for that big moment for them. Yes. And, and, you know, and he's still like, he literally said, it's been like, that's like his whole life is that split second of like breathing. You've had hits relative to your broader catalog, but obviously at least certainly not here in the States, not that sort of one really big. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. That's right. It's a similar conversation about having success early on, whether or not having something that is that, not just stratospheric, but stands out so much compared to the rest of your catalog, whether that's a blessing or a curse. It is a curse because you try to like, even like here in a relative sense, our big, our first big song on our first record was called Underwhelmed. And it was, you know, people yelled play Underwhelmed like for like five years and to the point where we didn't play it anymore. Uh, or we fought, you know, and we would fight in turn, like there's a push pull in the band about artistry versus being an entertainer, it's like, do we give these people what they want or do we say, fuck these people and, and uh, we're just going to do what we want? I feel like I, I'm somewhere in the middle. But yeah, so if, if we had had a, a song like One Week or whatever, like that, that it's hard. It's hard to, hard to come back from that. I mean, I started to, I alluded earlier to when you have a record that's 10 years old, then 20 years old and 25 years old. And it's people's favorite. Like it's, it's hard to compete with harder and harder to compete with that because I was so young. I'm, I look young and I look great on the cover of that record. And, uh, and the song came out when you were in university before you had kids and your divorce and whatever, like part of me wishes we had a big hit so I could retire, but, uh, but we never made so much money that we could ever stop. That's the other thing. And I'm, I'm grateful in a way, cause I enjoy working. I, I enjoy all aspects of my life, I like coming home, but I like also going on tour and I like recording and I like writing. Like I'm a pretty lucky guy. That dynamic that you described, the the push pull as you put it, between in the most in the simplistic ter- most simplistic terms like pop versus art, I guess. Yeah. Is that the kind of thing that to some degree maintains within the bands? Obviously, you know, you guys know each other really well, you've been doing this for a long time. Is that kind of tension 
still there to some degree. For sure. I would say that uh, to polarize them, I would say that Patrick is an entertainer and Andrew is the artist, but they both have aspects of each other of of the opposite. But, uh, you know, Andrew would just say he would literally go out and just randomly play songs and put no thought into it. And why should I like, I'm just going to, Hey, that would be a good idea. He just likes, he likes collage and he likes just happenstance and mistakes and whatever. And Patrick, Patrick is like, we have 14 songs that people know. Let's just go out and play those. And, you know, I'm definitely on the side of let's keep making more records, even though the records that we've made, the, the, the reason we get hired to do anything that pays is because of songs that we've already written there and anything we write from now on, we're just competing with ourselves for the real estate in the set list. You know, here's a new one. You know, we, we've been in, we made a new record in 2018 and we played 10 new songs in the set. You know, is that obnoxious or is that what, is that a responsibility of a cult act to do or, or, or is it just uh, is it selfish behavior? It's also something to some degree, if you're going to keep going that you kind of have to be, okay with all of that because i i talk to a lot of bands a lot of indie bands or you know they haven't been around for as long as sloan you know we're talking bands you know that formed in like the aughts for example yes and they're going through that thing right now where their audience has gotten older you know and this is well before covid uh there were fewer and fewer people coming out to the shows and they couldn't figure out if it was a matter of just their fan base getting older and maybe having kids and not coming out or whether it was sort of waning success. Right. And, 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 you know, and, and I've had some like very like honest questions with them where they're wondering whether they can or should keep going. Yeah. I think, I mean, I think that when you say that that's happening now to a group from the aughts, I mean, I think it probably happened to us in the early 2000s you know we had five records out you know our our third and fourth records sold pretty well you know they were their gold records in canada and then uh, our fifth record between the bridges came down and sold like a third or a quarter of what we had been selling and that that's napster time and uh and and kind of there wasn't a lot of rock you know it was backstreet boys and i joked at the time that you had to either be in the Backstreet Boys or Britney Spears or in Corn, like you had to be either an angel or a devil. Like there was no like where does where does Cheap Trick go? Where's ACDC go? It was such a weird time for popular music. Yeah, everything was either new metal or uh, like a, a manufactured pop group. It was really yeah. a bizarre time to try to navigate popular music. Yeah, well, I would say that I I don't think that we. Don't, I don't think that we really changed much. You know, uh, you know, we started recording on computer. I don't know what else we did that was different. You know, we did it because it was cheaper. That seems like a case where, like, where you couldn't have. There's no way anyone's going to buy Sloan as a new metal band, and like, certainly they're not going to buy you as a, a boy band. Right. Well, I've I've joked that we we all we've always been kind of a variation on a boy band in that I've always wanted us to be on the cover of our records. I've always tried to share the share the real estate of the set lists and the albums and the the pictures so that it's always the four of us it's it's not you know counting crows or it's like is there are there other people back there in the background like it's just like it's always the four of us like you know andrew scott's name even though he's 
the drummer or just in the background, but like we've really taken great pains to, you know, that's boy band stuff. Like that's Beatles stuff, but uh, you know, Beatles are a boy band, I guess. I'd heard you speak uh, prior to everything that's gotten on over the past year. And it sounded like I heard an interview that you did and maybe want to say early 2020 when we didn't think that things were going to get as bad as, as they have gotten. And it sounded like you were planning a lot for the 30th anniversary, which I assume most or all of it has been derailed. Yeah, we, I put up a picture. Yeah. So our band played our first show, February 8th, 1991. I I put up a video, a little bit some video of that show on February 8th, 2021, but we haven't, we haven't milked our 30th anniversary, even though technically this is the year but we want to, I guess we still want to be able to milk that uh, when, when we can exploit it at, at, you know, at the risk of sounding gross or whatever. But uh, yeah, we haven't, haven't really uh, made too much of a fuss over our 30th, 30th anniversary. But you know, next, next year is the 30th anniversary of our first record. I guess we could, we could milk that. Why did the Tons record come out when it came out? Uh, I would say that... Uh, I had always poo-pooed the idea of side projects because I wanted all of our best material to be in Sloan. And, you know, whether it was, uh, we had friends called Eric's Trip that lived in Moncton and they, there were four people in the band and they all had side projects and, uh, and they were all kind of got more interesting than the band, but that was kind of my barometer or whatever. It's like, I don't want that to happen to us. But in 2015 or whatever, we just we were just chugging along and just not making as much money. Like it used to be that we would make a certain salary draw, and then the band would kind of pay for our taxes. And then that year it was like we don't have money for that this year. So it's just like, oh, I need to make more money, and you can't can't begrudge me doing it anyway. So Matt uh, Matt Murphy is my good buddy, and and Mike O'Neill, my good buddy. These are old friends of mine. I knew Matt actually since 1986. We just got together and we jammed out ideas and we just thought we could write songs that way normally like in sloan we don't jam we all just kind of bring songs in but with tons we literally we made up 50 jams and then we listened to them and said let's work up these 12 so i don't feel like they really took away from my anyway that's how i justified it anyway it doesn't take away from my cache of songs we just sort of like create songs out of midair and it's fun and, and quick and it's a trio and I'm playing drums like and those, those are like two old friends of mine. And we don't have any of the same pressures of being in, a, you know, in, in our plan A and the sort of the pressures that go into running that. And, but uh, so, yeah, Tons is uh, T-U-N-S is my uh, trio. And we put out a record in 2016. And it's just called, it's just a self-titled record called Tons. And I, I look back on it and it was 2016. And I really wish we had called it 16 Tons. Really blew an opportunity there. You got to wait another hundred years for that one to come. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and we just put out a record uh, just a, a couple of months ago called Duly Noted. Actually, I take it back. You can, you just need to release 14 more records. Very, very good. You're right. Exactly right. Or a, or a 16 song record, maybe even. You hedge your bets. When you and I were talking and setting up this interview, you, I assume, like somewhat joked about not having anything on your calendar. Was this a, a matter of just like realizing that, hey, there's going to be this big gap in our ability to do anything with Sloan. So this is the time to focus on the side project again. No, we the record came out in 2016 and we were all gung-ho and it was really quick and easy to do. But then Matt moved to the UK 
and and got took a job over there and then both of those guys have had kids late in life you know those like guys like Mike's almost 50 Matt's 50 but but they both have like little babies so they're both kind of in the weeds not unusual for rock musicians no 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 and it's you know I had mine relatively late my kids are 13 and 10 and I'm 52 but uh you know those guys are you know 50 with like brand new kids like covid baby but anyway no we we had uh we had uh tons was on track to 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 do it like I wanted it to come out at the end of 2020 Matt was back from the UK and uh you know covid slowed it down it would have come out uh, a little bit earlier the fall of last year but Matt's back from the UK now but then yeah so pandemic so it's it's hard for us to uh, do anything else but uh I'm I'm we I think we have some shows we're going to do in December with those guys. So that'll be fun. Have you been able to do any songwriting in the meantime? I've been doing a lot of kind of uh, looking at what I have for songs. My my problem is writing lyrics. I've got a whole bunch of kind of finished songs with melodies and chords and all that stuff. But it's just, I like my words to be good, but I, I, I never like doing it. It's the, it's the most, it's the worst part is sitting, thinking I'm a poet, like sitting a, just writing in a journal, like a, like a goofball. But the other thing that I'm doing is like, we have a, our little, uh, you know, Sloan owns a little boutique label kind of in name called murder records. And we've been doing, we put out a couple Sloan records. We put out a couple B sides comps. One just came out the other day. B sides volume two, B sides volume one came out at the beginning of this year. We have a couple things. I think that are going to come out at the end of this year. I put out a record by my friend who died a couple of years ago uh, a, a recording that that I did with him from 1995. Gregory McDonald, who plays with Sloan on keyboards, he put out a record as Cola Wars, um, and we did the Tons record. And we, we, we a lot of stuff coming out. You know, small small time stuff. No one's making any m- much money, but it's a uh, it's fun hobby stuff to do. Is it hard to motivate? Is it hard to be productive when it's not clear when there's going to be another Sloan record or tour? I mean, obviously, like. None of us knew how long this thing was going to last, but it was clear at a certain point that that you weren't going to be out there playing live again next month. Yeah, we've done these little B-sides records. You know, we put the B-sides records out uh, digitally before, like in 2013 or something, but we've just been doing vinyl versions of them as a kind of stopgap thing just to have, just to show that we're still here and, you know, selling, you know, we make them limited edition, make 1,200 copies you know, makes us like $10,000 or something, but you know, it, it just goes on the pile. It, it, I don't pocket that much money. We have to split it all. We started to make a Sloan, a 13th Sloan record last fall before we had to sort of shut it down. So I'd like to pick that up again. I've been writing emails about people's willingness to get together and, you know, September might be the realistic next time that we all get together. I don't know, but uh, I'm ready to go. I have four, I've sung four songs for that record. Uh, I probably won't need that many if everybody steps up and does their kind of three songs, but I'm willing to throw four songs on the record. I was impressed with how not, not only how open you were about getting Bell's palsy, but you immediately had a picture of yourself. You and I discussed this a little bit before, but I, I dealt with this in late March, early April of last year. So I'm in Queens and it was like really when COVID was really starting to hit New York city. Yeah, I sort of, I compared the first several months of dealing with this to do you know what sitting shiva is in Judaism? i do yes so part of part of sitting shiva is that you cover all the mirrors okay 
And there was just a period, you know, I wouldn't do any Zoom calls with my coworkers, partially because I couldn't speak. You know, I was having difficulty with plosives. So like P's and F's were getting caught yes. right here. You had that picture of you and you were just like, hey, here's what's going on. Well, I forget the timeline. I, I got it in January and I feel like I didn't post about it until March, maybe. I don't remember exactly. But but I did say, I put up, you know... My wife was encouraging me to post about it. I didn't want to post about it because I was thinking, I don't have to be in the world. Maybe a couple of months from now, uh, maybe I'll be better. And then I'm not going to want this picture to exist. You know, uh, and and she encouraged me to say, she's like, you got 13,000 followers or something. It's like, take them on the journey. I mean, at some point, you're going to have to admit that that's what's going on. And so why not you just come good with it? So I was nervous about it because I didn't want to get a bunch of sympathy. People, you know, I didn't want a sort of like full-time job of having to respond to people about how sorry they were or whatever. And I also didn't want to make it look like I was had it any worse than anybody else who experienced these things, those kinds of things. And, you know, I didn't want to be accused of, uh, you know, this, whatever it would be called, like the disaster capitalism equivalent of anyway so i had this picture where i really felt like i looked like i had looked like a melted candle like it was really pretty severe looking and i was i had something written and i i, I didn't have the heart to press send i was like am i gonna or share or whatever it's like i don't know if i can do this and my wife's just like Boop. so i was like okay <laughs> I, was like, I live alone so i maybe <laughs> that's why i wasn't motivated in the same way well anyway like it's fine it was fine but then then it got picked up by the canadian press and then it was like in all these like newspapers. And then I had people calling me for comment. I was like, well, what am I going to say? Like, I'm not an expert. I don't know if I'm exactly doing it right. I went for a steroid shot the night that it happened. Like I noticed I couldn't spit in the sink. And then I went to the hospital and got a steroid shot. And, and I think that's what you're supposed to do. I feel pretty good now. Like it's been, been months and months. So I'm feeling pretty good. So anyway, so I was a little bit felt bad that like this most known picture of me now is this Bell's palsy picture. So I'm totally happy with mine. I'm a totally ha like I was mostly just relieved that I didn't lo lose my my hand. Like I I was like, is this a stroke? Like, am I gonna lose my left hand? And then I'm really I'm done. You know, what, what can I do? I think we were also in different boats because uh, you live in Canada and I live in America. And I went to an urgent care around the corner again at the height of COVID. Uh, I don't know if I told the story of the podcast before, but I went to an urgent care. I, I walked in, you know, I had my mask on. So I took my mask off and he, he looked at it and he was like, that's Bell's palsy. You know, and he tells me a little bit about it and he says, are you scared? And I said, well, yeah, I, I guess so. And he says, well, good, you should be. And then he proceeds to tell me that 20 to 30% of people never fully recover. What? It was the worst bedside manner that I've ever dealt with, with with any doctor. I think it's partially because of the American healthcare system, but partially because, again, Queens was the highest number of COVID cases in the entire world at the time. Right. I still haven't fully recovered. It's been a year and change now. And I, I, I guess at some point... I kind of had to come to grips with like, yeah, maybe it won't be ever be entirely better. And, you know, and I can still. Did you get a steroid shot or pill or whatever, a pill? You put me on steroid pills. Yeah. And it, it helped, you know, it was slow. We talked to you and I talked a little bit about acupuncture. I did that too. I'm not yeah. sure if that 
was, I mean, it certainly wasn't a magic bullet. Yeah, I was literally doing it so that to deal with people who were going to say, told you so, if I told them that I hadn't done it and then I hadn't recovered. <laughs> and they'd be saying, well, you should have tried, you should have done. It just, I didn't want to, I didn't want to hear it and I didn't want to have people to have to say it, you know, that, that I should have done this or that. Anyway, I'm, I'm, uh, did I tell you my other story again with the Stephen Page? He's my buddy. I was complaining to him that this was now the most known picture of me. And then he sent me a picture of his mug, of his mug shot. Cause he had been, he's like, this is the most known picture of me. And then my joke to that was, yeah, but you look, you never look better than that, than your mug shot. That's my joke. One of the things I'm thinking about a lot, and, and this is, this is COVID too. This is the Bell's palsy. This is a fact that that, and like a bunch of other things were happening at the same time. We're all hoping that at the very least we come out of this past year, I don't know, having learned something about ourselves, having better, you know, perspective on us or the world, you know, hopefully going through this trauma to some degree, we can come out the other ends better for it. Having dealt with, with that on top of everything else, do you feel like you've learned anything about yourself? Do you feel like you've taken any sort of, I don't know, lessons away from the experience? Uh, I don't know. I don't, I'm not wise. The worst thing that's happened for us is that, is that our, we had a, we had the video games kind of locked down with the kids and now with COVID, like the, the arse is out of her, as it were, like the kids just, they're never off the video games. That's the only way they interact with their friends. And, uh, and I just think their imaginations have been destroyed or something like It's like when they're off screens, they're just like, what do I do now? Like this sucks. And so I really regret that that has happened. We kind of just like, with the on with the online school and the video games and then the playing with their friends online, like there's just whatever. It's just kind of a shame. But uh, I don't know. I don't. I haven't learned. I don't have a good sage remark for you. Like we know. Like when when this happened, Sloan had done a bunch of touring, and we kind of we do a lot of touring, and then we take time off. So we were really lucky that we kind of like filled the coffers basically as much as we ever have them by March of that year. And so we've been kind of living off it. So, you know, if it goes on a lot longer, we're going to run out of money and then, you know, then we'll see what happens. But I haven't been, I, I haven't been that adversely affected by it, except for the Bell's palsy, which is a coincidence. I don't want to, I think it's comes off as crass or whatever to say that I've enjoyed myself because a lot of people have been like so, so compromised. Um, but I've been I'm lucky we're just, home bodies and we're home all the time and I'm with my wife and the kids and we're an intact family and I'm super lucky. I mean, I guess I've, I, I've realized that yet again, like I've spent my whole life thinking about how lucky I've been. Um, and it's just, I'm just lucky again. I'm just fortunate and about my lot in life. I'm lucky. I mean, I guess I would ask this of most people, but not you necessarily, you know, I would ask if it's made you, if it's given you gratitude, if it's made you more grateful, you know, being able to sort of like step away from it and view your career from afar to a certain degree. But it, I don't know, you don't strike me as somebody who ever really took it for granted. I don't think that I have. I've been, yeah, hopefully not. I, I, I think that uh, taking things for granted is a, is a shame. Like I don't believe in God or any of those things, but you know, I was raised Catholic and I think maybe some of those things were instilled in me as a, 
young Catholic kid, but uh, I definitely feel feel lucky. And uh, but I, I feel like I I want to think that I spend my whole life thinking that way. You know, it's funny. My kid is thirteen. My older kid is thirteen, and he's a musician, and he's way better musician than I am. And and I always talk about how lucky I am, and and he sort of let fly that he found it really discouraging for me to say how lucky I've been because he's like, well, well then what, what will my life be like if you were just lucky? Like who cares that I'm, you know, I tell him how good he is or whatever on as a musician. He's like, well, who cares? You were just lucky. It's like, okay, well we worked hard too. <laughs> you need luck, luck and, and, and hard work. Yeah, of course. And, and you're encouraging. I mean, I, he's 13, so he's not quite at the point where he's making like major life career decisions, but you're encouraging of that? Of course I am. But like, no, I have to hold back all my enthusiasm for his musical interests because I just look like he just jokes, you know, makes fun of me for being like this, like showbiz dad or whatever. He's awesome. He's so good, but he's so self-conscious. You know, I can't take a picture of him. I can't video him playing drums or piano or whatever, but he's so good. You know, I know that obviously there was at least one point in the band where the band ostensibly or maybe unofficially broke up, you know, due to myriad reasons. But beyond that, has it always been a given that there's always going to be a new record, that there's always going to be another tour? I think so. Like, I think that there are, we definitely talked about what is the value of new music versus not that we can do this experiment, but, you know, had we stopped playing in 1999 or 98 and then came back now, would we be millionaires? Would we be playing, you know, would our, you know, have we just done damage to our reputation because, you know, we went and got old and all those things, you know, the Rolling Stones, like how interesting are their records after Tattoo You, you know, and we're a lot older than they were on Tattoo You, although I think that was only, that was probably still their 12th album or something, but, uh, you know, they made so many records so quickly, but, but, uh, you know, I often compare us to the Rolling Stones, not obviously not for cultural impact, but just uh, as an example of somebody who's still trying to do it. And, you know, if you're the Rolling Stones, you know, you, you're talking about the idea of, of, of the curse or the, of having a hit, you know, they've got, they've got a set list that if they have a, if they have a new record and they add 10 new songs, like it's just a travesty. Like you can't, how many of those can you take out of the set? And I'd like to think that we have some songs that people want to hear. You know, I want that to be true, but I also want them to, Put you know we when we play now like it's been about ten years or so that we we don't have opening acts anymore we just play an evening with as it were and and we play two sets because you know we all take turns singing so in the course of a night like I'll I'll get five songs or six songs so if I play you know I probably have four songs that I probably should play every time but I, I like to play at least two of them and then. Then there are some from the new record, and then there are some that I, you know, if some people have seen us. I think we're a kind of a cult act, so like some people have seen us 40, 50 times. So I like I like to have some that that are just like way out of rotation that we can just pull out of a hat. So we have to play for two sets in order to get all that kind of stuff in. 